0: Uh, so today we're going to look at Psalms 42 and 43. As it turns out, they go together. So did anybody read? I don't want to put anybody on the spot. But my wife, she, I don't know if she'll be here, but my wife, she read Psalm 42 all week long. So I'm glad, um, I, and glad we're not doing Psalm 45. Like I said, we might be doing <laughs> a Psalm 42. Uh, but next week we will do Psalm 45. I should say the next Psalm that we'll do will be Psalm 45. So, you can prepare for that. And as I think of it, I will try to let you know what Psalm we will be doing so you can prepare for it the week before. I think that would be helpful. So, let us uh, pray. And, oh, let me, yeah, let us pray. And then I'll hand out these uh, handouts and you can use them to keep notes. Let's pray. Heavenly Father, we give you thanks for a wonderful uh, Sunday, a, a beautiful day, the, the Lord's Day, Resurrection Sunday. Uh, Thank you for this church and all that you are doing among us and through us. And we ask that you continue to pour out spiritual blessing upon this church. We ask that you continue to provide for us, that we might fulfill the ministry you've given to us to do. Uh, We pray that you would continue to protect the people of this congregation from the evil one. And we ask for your blessing upon this study now as we study two psalms that really speak to... uh, Uh, spiritual depression, as it's been called. And we just ask that you would give us insight and wisdom from your word to help us navigate our uh, trials and times when we feel distant from you. And we ask these things in Jesus' name. Amen. Okay. Go ahead and take one of these. Did you just take that from her? No. Did you steal that? (laughs) There you go. Use that to take notes if you'd like. You don't have to. It's just there for your convenience. All right, Psalm 42 and 43. And you'll see why the two are taken together as we make our way through the the passage. It's not a Psalm of David. It's from the sons of Korah or written for them or written by them. They were uh, out of the tribe of Levi specifically sons of Korah, who was a Levite, and uh, they would have been leaders, spiritual, uh, music leaders in the nation of Israel. Uh, mascul, we're not really sure what that word means. Um, some sort of genre of, or type of, of song. Remember, the psalms are songs, and they're intended to be sung and used for worship in Israel. We're not entirely sure what a mascul is. Uh, My footnote here says probably a musical or liturgical term, and I think we could have guessed that, right? But we're not exactly sure what it is. Um, But this is a a, a powerful uh, psalm, and what I want us to see immediately is if you look down in verses 42, chapter 42, 11, and then 43, 5, this is a psalm without resolution ultimately, or at least within the psalm itself. And that's, that, that only happens occasionally in the Psalms. Usually you have resolution. Usually you have the psalmist coming from his trial and uh, being delivered or rescued or relieved by the Lord and then writing about that relief and, and giving praise to God for what God has done in his life. Here you don't find resolution. And I think that will be an important piece, an important bit of insight to apply to ourselves and our own struggles with what has been called spiritual depression. And the reason I call it spiritual depression is because Martin Lloyd-Jones called it that years ago when he wrote his book, Spiritual Depression, and leaned heavily on this psalm. And um, what what do we mean by spiritual depression? But I think think it'll come out what we mean here as we walk through it. And um, let's see. Psalm, As you see, the, both psalms, they're, they're split up, but they really can be, they probably were split up for liturgical reasons, but it, they really can be taken together. As you can see, um, they are tied together with that uh, stanza in verse, verse 5 in, in both psalms. Why are you cast down, O my soul, verse 5 of Psalm 42, why are you cast down, O my soul, um, in 43, chapter through 43, verse 5 as well. So that's how we're going to take them. We're going to take it as one psalm, basically. So I've given you a few points to help you navigate through the psalm itself. And I just want to walk through it and really not allow it to be too overly structured, but to really feel the weight of the psalmist's situation here and what he is feeling. And that's what we should be, how we should be treating the psalms. They're not merely uh text for academic banter they are the real life struggles praises worship of a real life believer in the one true god and he we are taken as we go through the psalms we are taken through various seasons of a believer's life and here's a season where he's feeling very low So let's begin. Verse 1. So I titled this section, these two verses here, A Spiritual Thirst, A Spiritual Thirst. As a deer pants for flowing streams, so pants my soul for you, O God. My soul thirsts for God, for the living God. When shall I come and appear before God? And I want to just walk through verse, I'm just going to read verses 3 and 4 and then we'll go back and talk about the first couple of verses. My tears have been my food day and night, while they say to me all the day long, Where's your God? These things I remember as I pour out my soul, how I would go with the throng and lead them in procession in the house of God, with glad shouts and songs of praise, a multitude-keeping festival. So you can see right away that this psalmist is in a, a place of spiritual depression, grief. And not just grief, but grief over God. What do I mean by that? Well, he's in a situation where he has this thirst for God. And the language here is graphic. He's trying to get us to understand how desperate he is for the Lord. And again, this is not merely a mental thing. This is his whole soul desires after the living God, which implies that he has had an experience with God where his soul has been satisfied by the Lord. And it's been such now that he's in a situation where God seems distant. He is actually, as we'll see, he's actually, the psalmist is being kept from the place of corporate worship in Jerusalem, the temple. And he is wanting to praise and worship the Lord, and yet he is somewhere, he says uh, he's in the uh, land of Jordan and Mount Hermon in that area which would have been north of, quite north of Jerusalem. And we don't know the circumstances, but he's been cast out that way. He's not able to get back to the place of worship in Jerusalem. And he's had experience with God where his soul has been satisfied, and now he is, he is not able to gain that satisfaction So his, presently in his present state. So he's saying, his, as a deer pants for the flowing stream, so you could just imagine an animal in a hot and arid environment, which, which Israel often is, And uh, seeking for, been running for a while, maybe running from a predator for a while, and just thirsty. And as that that deer is looking for some place to relieve its thirst, the psalmist is now comparing that thirst in that that in that arid and dry environment, the thirst that he has for God. And I just I want to point this out to us. This is. Highly and heavily experiential, isn't it? The, the Christian faith, rightly conceived, rightly understood, rightly experienced, is not a mere intellectual faith. And we just need to be reminded again that, of that again and again, because we're in a church that highly prizes, as it should, the teaching of God's Word, and the understanding of theology, and the use of the mind, and of clear thinking, right? I mean, I, I think that char- would characterize our church, But if that's all there is, guess what? You still don't have Christianity. (laughs) Just knowing right doctrine about God, it's not Christianity yet. Is that a stunning statement? You guys are like, whoa, Derek's going off his rocker. No, I'm not. You must be born again. That's what Jesus said. And being born again, as we'll hear today even in the sermon, means... Receiving a new heart, a heart of stone that was removed and now replaced with a beating heart of flesh, so that you're not just experiencing truth intellectually, you're experiencing it spiritually to the point where you can say, my soul thirsts for God. And when you... The the implication here is that if you have a soul that thirsts for God, it implies that you have previously been satisfied. You know what water does, right? I mean, you've you've worked out really hard and you've gone on a long run and it's a hot day and you just can't wait to get back and get that big drink of ice cold water or vitamin water or whatever it is, right? And the reason you look forward to it is because you've had that experience before. You know what it's like to have your, your thirst quenched by that cool glass of water. And so here he's experienced something of God that, and now it's not, he's not experiencing it and so he is thirsting for it. And listen to, again, his language. As a deer pants for flowing streams, so pants my soul for you, O God. My soul thirsts for God, for the living God. Okay, so he, he has a spiritual thirst He makes this question here. He says, when shall I come and appear before God, which is a worship term in the Old Testament. When shall I come and appear before God? When shall I come and worship God at his appointed place of worship, namely the temple? And as I mentioned, if you look here in verse 5, my soul is cast down within me, therefore I remember you from the land of Jordan and of Hermon and of Mount Mitzar, uh, that's where he is presently at. Worship is in Jerusalem. Something has happened to where he has been thrust out of the place where he wants to be. And he says in verse 3, My tears have been my food day and night, while they say to me all the day long, Where is your God? So here is an, a, what we call an acute sorrow. It's acute for two reasons. It's acute because he's being thrust away from the place of worship. But it's also acute because he was remembering what that previous enjoyment of God was like. And so that actually intensifies the agony. I don't have that experience right now, and I know that I did before, and that in even remembering... Back when I did, as he says, these things I remember as I pour out my soul, just the grief, how I would go along with the throng and lead them in procession to the house of God with glad shouts and songs of praise, a multitude keeping festival. So he's remembering times when he with the congregation of Israel would just worship the Lord. And praise him and enjoy him and behold his glory with eyes of faith. And he's not experiencing that right now. And yet the grief is intensified by looking back and remembering how good it used to be. So there's this kind of double thing happening here. These things I remember as I, as I pour out my soul. So he's he's pouring out a soul to the Lord. He's thirsting for God. He's remembering the time when he was being satisfied in that corporate worship and walking along with the congregation and leading them in procession and just having a wonderful time of worship and it's not experiencing that now. And the, there's a, an acute sorrow because he's not only experiencing that lack right now, but he's also remembering a time when it used to be better. So it is an acute sorrow. I think that's, that captures what's going on here. That language of pouring out his soul, just the the grief. Now, let's step back here for a minute, and I do want you to see this, and you will see it clearly as we walk along. These are prayers, and this is anguish of faith, though. This is not utter despair. This is not secular despair. This is grief of faith. He is, he's not, He's wrestling with God. He's wrestling with his spiritual desires. He's he's wrestling with these struggles, yet he is not departing from God. He's actually continuing to call out to God. He's pouring out his soul to God. He is not walking away. This This is the grief of faith. This is despair, but not utter despair. His hope in God is still intact. And we'll keep coming back to that. But let's look now at verses five and six. This is this is very interesting, and this is instructive. So I remember I mentioned that book by Martin Lloyd-Jones, *Spiritual Depression*, which is a great book, and you should all get it and, and read it. It's an amazing uh, book. I recommend it without qualification. Uh, but he talks about in that book. He takes this verse here, and he and he says the 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 believer should take instruction from this. The believer needs to have some healthy self-talk and not always allow himself to be talking to himself. So don't we, we we allow we allow ourselves to talk to ourselves too much. We we listen to ourselves too much when in fact we should be uh, talking to ourselves. And so here the psalmist is talking to himself and exhorting himself. So here's an attempt at self-encouragement, okay? Or self-exhortation really I probably should have said exhortation, self-exhortation, because that's what it is. Watch what he does, and this is instructive for us. We can do this too, okay? Why are you cast down, O oh my soul? Listen, soul, what is going on? Why are you cast down? And why are you in turmoil within me? That word turmoil is really strong. I mean, it's it's a um, kind of convulsive, He it, like the, the soul is just... On the brink here, it's just topsy-turvy all over the place, right? Why are you like that within me? Okay? So he's getting after his soul. Like, listen, soul, no more of this, all right? Why are you cast down on my soul, and why are you in turmoil within me? Hope in God. So you see, this is not utter despair. This is not unbelieving despair. This is the despair of faith. And this is why the Psalms are so valuable to us. They teach us how to wrestle with the Lord in times of spiritual drought and struggle and depression. Here, he is is telling his soul hope in God. And this is so beautiful. For I shall again praise Him, my salvation and my God. So even though the darkness is kind of coming over him, there is still that ray of hope that he can see clearly, maybe small, but he can see it clearly, and he does not allow himself to be completely overcome with his despair. He believes that he shall again praise God. So he's exhorting his soul. Come on, soul. You'll again hope in God. And uh, Martin Lloyd-Jones says that's instructive for us. We need to stop listening to ourselves. We need to start talking to ourselves. God is our salvation. You will again hope in Him. He will not let you go. He will not leave you in a place of utter despair. He will revive you. You will again praise Him. So this is His attempt at self-exhortation or self-encouragement and we need to learn from it. I'm going to stop there and take a break and see what you guys have in, by way of questions uh, up to this point. Yeah, Abilash. So is it isn't the sons of Korah the sons of Korah that was destroyed yeah, by the, that guy. the earth open end. So they were banished from the congregation because of that? No, they weren't. He was. He died. He wasn't. They weren't. The Korah was, not his sons. There's no isolation. Mm-mm. Good question. Yes, Jason. Uh, in Second Corinthians seven, I think, when Paul talks about like uh, worldly grief, yeah, uh, or, or worldly sorrow versus godly sorrow, um, uh, would uh, how much of that would you think overlaps uh, uh, where it says like uh, hope, uh, like grief uh, that leads to a repentance and salvation, and in this case, the self-exhortation aspect in the psalm, do you think? There's like overlap in that and it could be kind of effectual in that also. So in Second Corinthians seven, uh, Paul is talking about genuine repentance. And um, what does genuine repentance look like? There are two kinds of repentance, both of which can look real, but only one of which is, and he he refers to them as godly grief and worldly grief. Uh, godly grief produces repentance that leads to salvation without regret, whereas worldly grief produces death. And then he goes on to explain how they responded. For we see uh, see what earnestness this godly grief has produced in you. So he sees godly grief in them. And what does it look like? It is comes with indignation, probably indignation over sin, fear of judgment, uh, longing to be free the, from the sin, zeal, um, and... Uh, At every point, you have proved yourself innocent in the manner they had a desire to clear themselves. So I think here Paul even talks about what is characteristic of godly grief, uh, what is characteristic of true repentance, okay? Um, Worldly grief, on the other hand, is is not grief when you've sinned, not grief over the fact that you've sinned against a gracious God, but grief over the circumstances, grief over the things that you're going to lose because you have sinned. That's worldly grief. Godly grief is grief over what you've done uh, to sin against the Lord, again, uh, sin against a gracious Heavenly Father. Um, in terms of its relation to this, pass, this passage here, the issue isn't... Um, th- and sometimes it is. Sometimes the issue is asking for forgiveness for sin and how that sin has led the psalmist into a, 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 a bad situation. But here, there's really no talk of the psalmist's sin. It's all about his adversaries who have thrust him out of the place of worship and thrown him up here to uh, North Israel, uh, away from Jerusalem, for whatever reason, we don't know. And they're taunting him, saying, where's your God? Ha, look at you. you know." And so here, it's not an issue of, of sin or worldly repentance versus godly repentance, or godly grief versus worldly grief, this is a matter of the psalmist grieving over the lack of nearness to God that he used to have. So if I were to categorize it, I would say this is in the, the category of godly. This is godly grief. Now, it's not. we're not talking specifically about repentance, but his desire... For God and his heart to be near God and be intimate with God, and, and the lack of that causing him to despair and have grief, that's godly. That's godly grief. Um, and so, if I were to categorize it, that's how I, I, I would. So, does that kind of answer your question in terms of the overlap? Yeah, good question. These are, these are holy desires, these are godly desires. Um, he's not grieving over the fact that he misses his house back down in Jerusalem and that sweet olive tree, that he, olive grove that he had outside his, his house. He is grieving because he has he, tasted and seen that the Lord is good and he's not experiencing that right now because he's not at the place of corporate worship. And he's being pursued by his enemies and they're taunting him. And so, any other questions? Do you guys ever exhort yourself? Pull yourself up and say, listen here. It's biblical. Um, This isn't just positive reinforcement, okay? This uh, This is biblical self exhortation, reminding yourself of your greatest good and that He is good to you. And yes, you will again praise Him. He will not let you remain in this place of despair. But here's, here it is, so he, he exhorts himself, doesn't he? But what happens? My soul is cast down within me. So it's not as though he exhorted himself and poof, I'm good. I can go about my day as some sort of, this is a magic pill. No, this is real life here, and the struggles continue, okay? My soul is cast down within me, therefore, uh, so, so he, he exhorts himself, his soul is still cast down within him. He's not giving up, though. Okay, So we are being taught here how to do battle with spiritual depression, and it's not passivity. I think I mentioned this just when we talk about depression in general. I mentioned this in our um, discussion of psychology versus um, Christianity. And some of the counsel for those who are depressed is to take time off, to... Um, kind of take time off work, time off of relationships, spend some time alone, um, and, and kind of approach depression passively. Uh, biblically speaking, that's the worst advice in the world. You're, we're not to approach our depression passively. You certainly shouldn't stop working. That's terrible, terrible advice. Um, but also, here, the, the psalmist is, is actively, in his mind, doing something to bring himself back around. My soul is cast down within me. Therefore, what do I do? I just lay at home all day, and I watch Netflix, I, I binge on Netflix, and I eat loads of pizza, and that should do it. Therefore, I remember you from the land of Jordan and Hermon in Mount Mitzar. I'm up here away from Jerusalem in dire straits. I'm panting and thirsting for God. I do not feel near Him. I want to worship, and I can't right now. And I'm up here in the the foothills of Mount Hermon, and this is where I remember you. I remember you. So he's actively remembering the Lord. We've already seen Him that He would remember how he used to worship and lead the procession and they go along praising the Lord. I remember you. And even where I'm at in this, this uh, wilderness, I remember you, okay? But it's, it's a place where he still is struggling and watch how he uses this language. So, um, this deep calls to deep, the waterfalls, it's probably because he's looking He's probably in a place where these water features and these land features are at. So he's looking around and he's drawing from these land features of where he is at, waterfalls, um, water features and things like that. And he's using them now to illustrate his experience. Deep calls to deep at the roar of your waterfalls. And the language here, you know, you think of water, Water is supposed to be, like, in, as he already talked about it too earlier, as a, a deer goes up to, he's thirsty and he's hot, and he comes up to a, a, a water feature, like a, a nice flowing river or a, a calm lake. And those things are peaceful and helpful and, and, and beautiful, right? Well, here he's in a place where the water that is supposed to be nourishing and life-giving is actually dangerous and scary, He says deep calls to deep at the roar of your waterfalls. All of your breakers and your waves have gone over me. So this is not, you know, this is not the the wave park in Orlando, okay, like where you're having fun getting tossed through the waves, that's not what this is. This is you feel like you are about to die because you are out in the ocean getting uh, hammered by 10 foot waves, that's what this is, okay. Wherever, whatever water features, probably some sort of strong-flowing uh, river. Um, and, and so he's, he's looking at these things, and he's saying, like, this is my experience. I am being cast to and fro by my current situation, my current trials, and they are all coming from whom? God. Okay? So he is desiring after God, panting after God, Seeking God, remembering God, and at the same time recognizing it is God who is doing this in his life. He is, he is not finally pinning this on his enemies or even himself. He's saying, This is the Lord who has done it. Deep calls to deep at the roar of your waterfalls, all of your breakers and your waves have gone over me. Have you guys ever been out in the ocean and ever, like way out in the ocean, ever gotten in trouble? It is really, really scary. That happened to me once, and it was terrifying, right? And it wasn't even like strongly. Uh, the waves weren't even strong or anything like that. I was just way too far out, and and um, and here he's talking about the the waves carrying him up and smashing him and coming over him and. You can just imagine the panic. You're out there in the ocean and you're out, or, or even in a, in a strong uh, river current and the waves are just coming over. You can't catch your feet. You can't catch your breath. And that's the desperation he's feeling. But yes, he's a, but yet he's attributing it to God. Okay? So he has a very strong, robust sense of God's sovereignty, of who God is. However, so given that, however, okay, verse 7 um, nevertheless, look at verse 8. So it, again, this is not utter despair. The balance here is remarkable. But by day the Lord commands His steadfast love, and at night His song is with me, a prayer to the God of my life. So he's, he's talking about the, the experience that he's feeling. God just, these waves and breakers, God's um, breakers have gone over him, yet... There's also experiences in his life where he's re- he can recognize God's steadfast love, and his night, at night, his song is with me. So, there is some relief here. There is some experience of the Lord. There is some joy. There is some hope. There is some faith here, and the the way these two things are mingled together, I think, are very instructive and helpful because this is often the believer's life. You don't have life doesn't come at us in nice organized little chunks. Like, here comes the despair. Okay, I'm ready for the despair. Okay, here comes the joy. I'm ready for the joy. So you can prepare for it. That's just not how life works. At one point, you've got the waves and the breakers going over you, and it could be five minutes later you are talking about the Lord commanding His steadfast love to you, and you have a song in the night. And then five minutes later, you've got another challenging situation, or whatever it might be, ten minutes later, a day later, weeks, months, however those things get sorted out. I think it's very instructive how these things are weaved together and they're mingled one with the other. And it's instructive for us to see that He does not let go. He is still believing. Verse 9. So I, I call this section grieving and believing. Grieving and believing. Does that sound like anything you've heard in the New Testament? Paul's phrase, What? Sorrowful, yet always rejoicing. Yep. I just... How would you sum up the Christian life, Derek? Sorrowful, yet always rejoicing. Sorrowful, yet always rejoicing. That's... That's just... That would sum up the Christian's experience in this side of of eternity. Sorrowful, yet always rejoicing. Grieving and believing. I say to God, my rock, why have you forgotten me? Why do I go mourning because of the oppression of my enemy? Now, what do you say about verse nine? Why have you forgotten me? What kind of statement is that? Why have you forgotten me, Jason? I guess it's like kind of implying it has been done. But also the thing that tends forgotten. Pardon to say again. Like, Yes, it has. Um, but given what he has already said about the Lord and things he said about the Lord, I don't want to set anybody up for failure here. Um, uh, is this reality? Has the Lord forgotten him? No. no. And yet he says it, and he's being sincere. So what kind of statement is this? This is a... God, he knows God hasn't forgotten him, but what? It feels like it. it, feels like it. Exactly. It feels like it. It's, it's fine to feel as though the Lord has forgotten you. You know he hasn't. You know he hasn't. He, the psalmist knows God hasn't forgotten him. And yet he is free to express that to the Lord of the question, why have you forgotten me? I don't think that's sinful. I don't think that's wrong at all. Why have you forgotten me? It feels like you have. I know you haven't. You command your steadfast love for me every day. Your song is with me in the night. But this present situation, I feel like you've forgotten me, Lord. That's, That's where he's at. It's an overstatement in some ways. But it's, it's what Yvonne said, it's because he feels this way. Why do I go mourning because of the oppression of the enemy? As the deadly wound in my bones, my adversaries taunt me while they say to me all day long, where is your God? That's what's so hard about being in a situation like this is that not only do you get, it might be as a result of the taunts from your enemies, but it also then the enemies see that you're struggling and then that gives them fuel for the fire, right? They can keep saying, where is your God? Ha, you, you agree that he's forgotten you, right? So this is just, this is, this is brutal. He's a deadly wound in my bones. I mean, these are, this is graphic strong language, isn't it? Uh, Abilash, did you have a question? Is it prophetic uh, in the sense Jesus says in the cross? Well, Jesus is quoting Psalm 42. Um, and when he says, My God, my God, why have you forsaken me? Yeah. That's Psalm 22. Um, there is, I think you should read, and that's what we're trying to do, you should read the Psalms Christocentrically so that you do see the fulfillment of the songs, like we saw The Righteous Man or, or here, that Jesus is the, he is the suffering servant. He is the paradigm, you could say, of the suffering righteous person. Um, so a statement, Jesus forsaken, is it a true statement or... I personally don't believe that the, the members of the Trinity can forsake each other. I just, that's not possible, ontologically. So I think that, yes, Jesus is expressing something that he de- desperately feels at that moment, though he knows it's not true. So um, you've probably been told that the Father separated from the Son and all this stuff. Um, I, I don't think that's a, appropriate language for the Trin- Trinity. Um, in, it's, a mis- it's a mystery what happened on the cross. God punishing His own Son for sin, not His own. Um, but could the Son be separated from His Father? I have a hard time saying it. So, in terms of your question, does, was Jesus saying something that He felt acutely at the moment? Absolutely. Um, because there was a pouring out of the wrath of God upon Him for sins he had not committed, that he did not deserve. Um, And in that sense, there was a feeling of forsakenness. Yet, we can't therefore say that there was ever, at any point in the universe, at any point in eternity, a separation between the Father and the Son, ontologically. Um, We use that, if we are using that language to kind of help us understand the mystery of what happened on the cross, I'm fine with that. Um, but we need to be careful that we're not suggesting some sort of breach in the Trinity during that time of the Father pouring out wrath upon the Son. So I'm okay with saying, yes, this is something he felt acutely at the time, though the perfect Son of God also knew that uh, the, the Father had not ultimately forsaken him and would not ultimately forsake him. So, Crystal. Right. <coughs> so right. So, in a way, maybe in that moment that there was, like, he was on hell, in hell on the cross. Like, if, like that type of interpretation. So, like, what do you kind of think about that? Or is it because he's referencing from the Psalms which that is a feeling mm-hmm. that's more likely, like, what you're saying in that interpretation probably isn't really sure. So, that's why, I, so, if the if the language we're using to describe what happened on the cross, um, if it's language we're using to somehow explain the mystery of that transaction that happened on the cross, and you use the word separation, um, I'm okay with that. Because I, I think it's just challenging to, to, use, to find language to describe the fullness of that, that mystery. I mean, the New Testament gives us plenty of language. We should try to stick with that, but um, in terms of I, um, yeah, so I guess that would just be my first answer, Crystal, would be, I'm, I'm okay with the language so long as we know that what we're not suggesting is that there was some rending of the fabric of the Trinity when, while Jesus was on the cross. And, um, the language of separation can, can lead to that kind of conclusion. Um, there's also a popular—not popular—a new uh, view that says that God hated the Son for that moment, or those three hours. Um, that's blasphemy. I'm just sorry. I and mean, it's coming from evangelicals, so that's blasphemy. Um, the, the, there was not an ontological rending. There was no hatred of the Son from the Father. Um, What we do know is that there is pouring out of wrath, to use a propitiation, Um, there is the judging of sin uh, upon the infinite Son of God, Um, there is a full payment completed. Um, those Those are the things that we know textually. So, to go back to your original question and to Abilash's question, when... Jesus is quoting Psalm 22, he is expressing something that he genuinely felt. That the Father had turned his face away from him, as the, as the song says. Um, all the while, knowing Hebrews chapter 12, for the joy set before him, he endured the cross, despising its shame. He knew that there was no final, complete rending of his relationship with the Father. Um, he knew he would be restored again. So, um, I think that's, that's all I'm hesitant on with the, lo, the separation language. Um, Is it okay to say he just withheld his this protection, not separation, not being separated, but just God's protection over Jesus? Or, or, I think it's okay to say that God poured his wrath out on the Son, because that's, that's what the New says. Testament says. Um, Jason? Could, could uh, when Christ uh, says, why have you forsaken me? Yeah. Could be better just uh, visualized as God, you know, look, just turning... Tur- looking like, away, uh, turning, turning away, yeah, like, yeah. Uh, forsaking has a, a connotation of like abandoning or like not, not giving attention like, you know. So, uh, yeah, rather than like separation as if it's like a yeah. break in the Trinity. Right. And, too, if it's a matter of him feeling something uh, acutely, then I'm fine with forsaken language. I'm, I'm even fine with separation language if, if we know what we're talking about when we say that. Um, but. I could all this be explained by the mystery of the hypostatic of God man? Yeah, yeah. It can be something that can be separated, forsaken. It wasn't a part of the body. It's so hard to explain. Right. Right. Yeah, it is. And that's yeah, you just have to be careful because because of the the union of the, the divine and human natures, you have it's the divine it's the one divine son. He's the subject of the incarnation. He's the he the son is the one being punished, not just the humanity. Because he's Um, and therein lies the mystery, right? So, because the sun is perfect. and So, yeah, I I think I've ventured about as far as I can in terms of my pay grade um, to try to to unravel the mystery, but I'm just explaining whatever language we use, let's have a, a robust understanding of the Trinity that that in that mystery, in that, that transaction on the cross, that there wasn't some sort of divine rending, rending of the divine nature and things like that. Um, and, and that's why I say, like, I'm trying to stick with New Testament language, and, you know, I'm, I'm not upset at anybody using separation language. I just don't want it to become confusing in that ontological sense. So, yeah. Thanks for all the easy questions today, guys. I appreciate that on, on, on this Sunday. Um, Okay, uh, verse 40, uh, I'm sorry, chapter 42, verse 11. At the end of this psalm, Why are you cast down on my soul, and why are you in turmoil within me? Hope in God, and I shall again, for I shall again praise Him. Um, My salvation and my God. Anticipation, but no resolution. No resolution. Huh. Well, maybe he'll get resolution in, in chapter 43. Um, verses 1 and 2. Request for vindication. Defend my cause. Vindicate me, O God, and defend my cause against ungodly people. For the deceitful and unjust man deliver me. Or from the deceitful and unjust man deliver me. For you are the God in whom I take refuge. Why have you rejected me? Why do I go about mourning because of the oppression of my enemy? So we're still in a troubled state. He is clearly being oppressed by someone or a group of people. Um, they are taunting him. They are keeping him from uh, going where he wants to go to worship the Lord. Um, he, is, he is mourning. I mean, uh, his tears, verse 3 of chapter 42, my tears have been my food day and night. Have you guys ever experienced this kind of thing where like someone can look at you wrong and you'll start crying? I'm, I'm, I'm not just talking to the ladies here. Um, that's the state that he's in. Probably exceedingly exhausted, very tired, oppressed by the enemy. He's going about mourning. And so he looks at his circumstances and it feels like God has rejected him. And so he's praying, Lord, would you vindicate me and defend my cause? This is a perfectly legitimate prayer for the child of God. By God's grace, you've been brought into his family, you've been justified. And so you you don't plead on the basis of your own righteousness, but you can now plead for God to defend your cause against ungodly people. You are able to look out across your oppressors and say that they are deceitful and unjust. You can say that. You can conclude that. That's not judgmental. They are deceitful and they are unjust, and I pray that you deliver me from them. These are all legitimate prayers that a godly person can and should pray in this, in this kind of situation. So he requests vindication, whatever the situation is, and then he requests, he makes a request for renewed worship, send out your light and your truth, let them lead me, let them bring me to your holy hill and your dwelling, referring to here probably immediately the temple at Jerusalem. But probably with a view to something greater than that, I think. Let them bring me to your holy hill and to your dwelling. Now again, God's dwelling was in Israel, but there is language in the psalm in the psalms that pushes you beyond just the temple. That there's more than this. He's looking forward to something greater than just the temple. Uh, I will go to the altar of God, to God my exceeding joy, and I will praise you with the lyre, my God, O God, my God. Again, his grief is not over the fact that he can't return to a sweet plot of land in outside or in Jerusalem with his nice olive grove and his two donkeys or whatever. Right? That's not the grief. The grief is that he can't go to God, his exceeding joy. God is his joy. God is his treasure. And, but he's praying here that God would renew his worship and, and bring him to that place where he can worship him, worship him again. So he's asking for that. Send out your light and your truth and let them lead me. Let them bring me to your holy hill. I want to worship again. But guess how the, these psalms end. Why are you cast down, O my soul? And why are you in turmoil within me? Hope in God, for I shall again praise him, my salvation and my God. And that's how we're left. You're walking through it thinking, there's going to be resolution. I just know it. There's going to be resolution. It's going to be great. The last verse is going to be, and then I came and beheld the Lord in His temple. And it was glorious. It's not how this psalm ends. Now, I think that is incredibly profound and important for the believer. Why? Why? In this life, there may not be total resolution to your grief. In this life. But his statement is still true. Hope in God, for I shall again praise him, my salvation and my God. There will be a time when the grief is fully resolved. It may be in this life. If it's not, it will happen. God will resolve it. So that the, this, the self-exhortation, hope in God for I shall again praise in my salvation and my God. The, the, the lesson here is that it may not happen immediately. It may happen a f- few weeks from now. may happen a few months from now. may happen a year from now. It may happen for... It may not happen immediately, but it will happen. So this lack of resolution, I think, helps create strong Christians who are able to weather difficult, challenging, even spiritually depressing times while at the same time reminding ourselves and exhorting ourselves. We, it's not not just... I resolve that life's going to stink from here on out. That's not the resolution. He resolves to hope in God, for I shall again praise Him. That's, That's what he's placing his hope in. And this creates strong Christians who are able to weather challenges in life without becoming utterly disgruntled, complaining, grumbling, bitter people. And I've known Christians who have gone that direction because they have failed to exhort themselves They say, Hope in God, I will again praise Him. This um, psalm has been tremendously helpful to me. And even going through it again, it's, it's a, just a renewal of my own um, experience with it previously. I had to teach in, actually I had to teach this psalm my first sermon. In sermon prep class, was this Psalm? Psalm 42, yeah. In 2000, no wait, 2000, I can go back and look at my transcript, 2001, I think, at the master's college. Um, and just these reminders that there may not be resolution, but to continue to exhort myself to hope in God, because I am going to again praise Him, whatever the I will again praise Him, whatever the situation <coughs> is. So, uh, five minutes for last questions before y'all go to main service. Yes, and make them a little uh, harder than the last ones. That would be great. This is one of the few that are like that, um, and it, is, it seems to be clear because of the, the inclusio or the repeated refrain here, the ending of um, verse 5 in Psalm 43. It is the, that repeated refrain that happens one, two, three times between the two. It ties them together. And then the question is, why were they split up? Possibly for liturgi- uh, liturgical reasons, singing reasons. Um, this is one of the few that even do that. I'm not even aware of another one that does that. Well, no, there is, a, where is it? There is, there's another set that has very similar language in between the two. I just can't remember which one it is. Um, but this one, it's so, so obvious that it's easy to, to put them side by side. Um, most of the time, the Psalms stand alone and are meant to and and were written in that way. Yeah, Amy? Uh, because most of the time, the songs have uh, who wrote it. Yeah, and superscription, and this one doesn't, yeah. ...43 doesn't have that, so it shows that it's written by the same, the same the Yeah, and, and that's the, and I'm trying to think of another one. Those, like the... Um, that doesn't have that. Yeah. Those were put in later in an English Bible. Yeah, any kind of title that you have on your Psalms, like ESV says, "Why are you cast down, O my soul?" That's Psalm forty-two. They try to mark it off with different font, and the um, all the small caps font is the the font that's supposed to be in the uh, the actual text, which I believe is inspired text. Um, That is different from the uh, the the italicized bold title that the. Editors of your Bible put in just for helping you sort out the Psalms in your own mind. Um, so, yeah, they've been added. It's only the, all, the small caps uh, section that is textual. That uh, was an original Hebrew. Yes. Yep, exactly. Anything else? Okay, great. Well, thank you for your attention and your fantastic questions. Um, Maybe this week I'll uh, dig into your uh, question about what happened on the cross, see if I can come up with even more clarity um, for our sake. But uh, let me pray for you, and then you're free to hang out, fellowship, until we have uh, our main worship service. So let's pray. Heavenly Father, uh, we thank you for this wonderful psalm. what a gift it is, how realistic it is. Um, boy, we are tempted to uh, just give a kind of, uh, to seek kind of a placid emotional life to make it appear as though everything is just fine and yet the Psalms cause, call us to, to um, pour out our heart to you and to wrestle with grief and to admit it, admit it when we have it and to be able to cry out to you and say, Lord, why have you forgotten me knowing you haven't yet It's how we feel, and the psalmists give us a voice to do that. Uh, Lord, I thank you for this psalm that actually doesn't have a real resolution except to say that we will uh, again praise you so we can uh, hope in you. And um, we look forward to your goodness, whether you bring resolution in this life or the next, we look forward to your goodness uh, as you pour it out in our hearts and minds in Christ Jesus. And we pray these things in Jesus' name. Amen.